It's Daily Thunder, thundering out the truth of Jesus Christ live every morning from the Ellerslie campus in Windsor, Colorado. To learn more about our discipleship programs or to support this podcast, visit ellerslie.com. Now, here's Eric Lee. Welcome to the Tuesday edition of Daily Thunder. Uh, We're in a five-part series where we're going to sort of unpack, and I'd say the heartbeat of what we stand for, we communicate here at Ellerslie. And so this is, this is very dear to me and to our staff as we walk through this. And I know to many of you in this room, this is the stuff that has bonded us, has rallied us together. And so it's called the Five Fabulous Fingers, which is more of a humorous sounding title than it is a serious one, but it, it's good. They, they are Five Fabulous Fingers. And we are talking about these five key truths that undergird the integrity of the faith uh, in Jesus Christ. And uh, so I'll go through what those five are in an overview, but each day of the week we're going through and digging a little deeper into each one. And so today is called The Man. And it's a very simple, rather boring title, but rather significant when you put a capital M on The Man and you recognize who, who are we talking about here? We're talking about The Man. Uh, the one who took on the form of man and lived as a man ought. And uh, so I, I'm a big fan of the man. So let's, uh, let's do a quick uh, look at the five fabulous fingers. Yesterday we talked about the first one, and they're all going to be the word of God in something. So the word of God in text was the one we discu- uh, discussed yesterday, and that's the scriptures. We, we oftentimes refer to as it as the Bible, the word the Bible is not even in the scriptures, so that's what's funny. It's, it's, a, it's a modern nomenclature for the same thing. There's nothing wrong with the term, by the way. You could call it the canon, and it would be accurate, but it w- the Bible itself calls itself the scriptures, so it's, it's a good, safe term for it. The word of God in text is the scripture, and the word of God in text points to something. It points to the word of God in person, who we know as Jesus Christ. He fulfills all righteousness, and then... But it doesn't just point, the text doesn't just point to the person, it also points to what this person will do. And so the way that we've phrased it here at Ellerslie is the word of God in action. It's not just that God came, it's that God did. See, he could have come and waved at us and then gone and just shown us what he is like, but he came and did something to enable a domino effect into our life that would bring about a salvation, a saving of us, and that's the action of God. So the word of God in action, we could call it the cross. Now we know that Jesus did more than just the cross, but the cross is a summation. So even Paul the apostle, when speaking to the uh, Corinthians, he says, I came and determined to know nothing among you but Jesus and him crucified. So in other words, he can enunciate the entirety of the man and his action in those two phrases, Jesus and him crucified. The, so the fourth uh, finger is the word of God in us, uh, which is the gift of the Holy Spirit. See, Jesus Christ, when he died on that cross, many would say he died to just forgive us, which is true. He died to forgive us, but he did something so much more. He died to give us his life. And so as a result, because of his death, he has created an avenue that we can actually enter into the throne room of grace and ask the Father for the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit. And that's, of course, how Christianity works, which is what the fifth finger is, which is the word of God through us. And that's, I'm just simply describing as Christianity. That's the life that we now live. We have the privilege, because of what God has done, 
All of that is the work of God, and even Christianity is the work of God. Everything we believe is that God has done it, which is what grace is. Grace is God working on our behalf. So what are we saved by? Grace. Well, how do we get that grace? By believing, through faith. That's actually how we get it. So when we put faith into this, what God has accomplished, it results in a working of God in us and through us. And the world is changed, not because we're great people, but because he's a great God. So we started yesterday talking about the invisible God, that this is the basis of revelation. It's funny because he's invisible, so how do we know him? How do we see him? And we, we talked yesterday about the miracle of the communicative God that we have in that he has revealed himself. He has taken that which is invisible and revealed it to us in and through the word so, and I gave the illustration yesterday, but if I have a thought in my head, it cannot be seen. It's invisible, right? It's a thought. But if I package it into a word and I shoot it out of my mouth and it zooms around the room and inside through your ear canal into your brain and you unpack it, you can actually read my mind and know the hidden things inside of me, you can know them inside of you. How did that happen? That's remarkable. That's a miracle. And yet we all take it for granted. It's like words just exist. Yeah, but God invented words. He invented us to be a communicative people to reveal the fact that that which is invisible, he desires to be known. And so God has taken that which is invisible and he has clothed it in this vehicle of revelation known as the word of God. And so the word of God in text, the Bible is how it starts. And so God shows up in a bush, aflame with fire, and encounters a man named Moses. And Moses is this first one to write down the first five books of, of the text of Scripture. And he encounters God, and the first thing he's going to find out about God is his nature. He's going to find out that God is. And that's what the, his proper, God's proper name is revealed in and through that bush, Yahweh. The four letters, the I am that I am. The one that was, the one that is, and the one that always will be the same. So the marvel of the word is that it takes that which is invisible and makes it visible. So when you understand the word of God in text is going to take invisible realities of God and suddenly it's visible. Now it's odd to say that the text of scripture is making that which is invisible visible, but it is. Text is visible. And so you're actually seeing God with his own finger scroll onto the, the tablets of stone the realities of God's righteousness. He is taking that which is invisible, the righteousness of God, and suddenly making it visible. Now, it's just words on tablets of stone. And what's going to increase over the passage of time is God is going to take that same invisible, and now he's going to reveal it in a human body. Of course, that's Jesus Christ, which is what we're going to focus on today. But that's, that's astounding. Okay, That gets me excited, and that's what we're going to call the marvel of the word so this is what I, I talked about yesterday. This is who Jesus is. He is going to take that which is invisible and make it visible. No man hath seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, which is in the bosom of the Father, he has declared him or revealed him. And in Colossians 1.15, Jesus, who is the image of the invisible God. And as we know, Jesus goes out of his way to make it clear. Hey, when you see me, you've seen the Father. You've seen that which is invisible. So I likened that yesterday to a glove that is resting upon a hand. Now imagine the hand is invisible. You cannot see what it is doing. It wants to communicate to you. It wants to send a message to you, but you can't see it because it's invisible. But there is a glove that is made in the image of that hand, 
And when that glove slips upon that invisible hand, it makes visible that which is invisible. And now, when the invisible movements of the hand are made, the glove mimics them or follows the trajectory, follows the choreography of the movements, and now is revealing in the natural realm that which is invisible, and that is Jesus Christ. That's precisely what he is doing. So yesterday we talked about finger number one, the text, the amazing, miraculous, perfect text. Today we're going to talk about finger number two, the man, the amazing, miraculous, perfect man. Who is this man? So all throughout the Old Testament, we are going to see one referred to. The Jews would refer to him as the Messiah. In the Greek, if you take that same word and take it into the Greek, it's going to be Christos which is where we get the word Christ. It's the one who will have God upon him. He will have this anointing upon him. And there's all sorts of scripture about him. I mean, the whole Old Testament is basically about him. And all the way back to the very beginning, it's going to be the seed of the woman that will crush the head of the serpent. So that's actually what is said to Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. So the first prophecy about this coming Messiah is way back, right in the very beginning. And so who is this man? Ten quick meditations that lead to awe and worship. So this will be a fun way of me answering the question, who is this man? I'm just going to get, now there's a whole bunch of things that we could talk about Jesus, okay? I'm just going to give you ten, but these are uh, ten doozies. I, I, I love these ten things. So first, if what God's word says about God's word made flesh, Jesus Christ, throughout the entire Bible is true, then Jesus is. Now, what you'll see is an if-then. Okay, the, the flow of logic is such. Now, logic comes from uh, a Greek word, uh, logos, uh, and which is what word is based on. That's actually what Jesus became as the logos made flesh, which is an interesting thought. And it's very logical. Now, in postmodern, the postmodern era in which we live, logic isn't accepted. We don't care about logic. And However, God still does, okay? Because God, everything makes sense. He's reasonable in everything he does. And so if something is true, then you can follow suit. If it's true that God cannot change, for instance, then he's the same today as he was yesterday. Okay, this, that's just logic. If it's true that God cannot lie, that means that he cannot lie. That means that what he has spoken in his word is truth. Okay, this is Good old-fashioned logic, which is extremely important to the idea of faith. Because if you have faith that is based in your own emotions as opposed to in truth, in something that is unalterable and something that makes sense, you're in trouble. So here's a good syllogism for you. If what God's word says about God's word made flesh, Jesus Christ, throughout the entire Bible is true. So just imagine if you start with the fact that this text that we talked about yesterday, in fact, is the word of God. What if you conclude that it is the word of God? That means it bears the nature of God, which is unchanging and cannot lie. That means it's true. And so if you come to that conclusion and it speaks about this one named Jesus, that means it cannot change and it cannot lie. That means we're going to conclude that Jesus is what? Okay, that's what leads to my 10 meditations because I believe that the text of scripture is true. I believe it is God's word. I believe that when it speaks, it cannot lie. And I believe that it has revealed the person of Jesus Christ to be, and I'm going to give you 10, 10 specific things that are so astounding, so amazing, because many of us, we think of Jesus and 
we think of him being born in Bethlehem. And it's all, oh, you hear some Christmas carols in the background as, even as you're thinking about it. It's, it's precious and it's sweet and that's great because it's true, he was born in Bethlehem. But we don't realize that that is not his beginning. The fact that God Almighty came and I mean, it became a fetus, okay? That, it became a, a baby, that's hard for us to comprehend, but became a, a fetus. I mean, at the cellular level, he humbled himself. I mean, that is, at a microscopic level, he's like, I'm here. <laughs> I mean, that is astounding that he actually did this, but that wasn't his beginning. He didn't start in the womb of Mary, and that's what I'm gonna go through. Okay, I'm gonna, I'm gonna say this is what the Bible says that this man is. Meditation number one. He is from of old, from everlasting. He has no beginning and no ending. Okay, well, wait a minute. Now, many of us understand that he has no ending. Okay, we, got, we have that down because he's, he's seated on high at the right hand of majesty. It'd be really weird to think that he's gonna like grow old and die. Okay, we, we know that's not gonna happen. But to say that he has no beginning sort of puts us into that awkward territory. Remember when you were a little kid and you'd just stare up at the sky and you'd feel the bigness of the universe, and then when you start to think of the fact that God has no beginning and no ending, it almost overwhelms you. And I don't know if you ever had those moments. I, I sure did, and I'm guessing a lot of kids do. And it's funny that as adults, we sort of just learn to not go there, to not overthink it, because it's a little hard for us to think of God always being there, okay? I don't, I don't know if you've ever had that mental gymnastic, but it's like, okay, that's not helping me, <laughs> Because you're trying to reason through it. You're trying to grip something in a natural realm that you can't. You're a created being trying to comprehend the incomprehensible. But one of the things we know about God is he's from of old. Jesus Christ is from of old and from everlasting. So here we have Micah, one of the key foundational revelations of this coming Messiah. But thou Bethlehem Ephrathah, Though thou be little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of thee shall he come forth unto me that is to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth have been from of old, from everlasting. It's the equivalent of saying he's coming from eternity. I mean, that's not the normal statement. When, when, I was, when my mom was pregnant, my dad wasn't like saying, this child inside of you is from everlasting. No, he's, he just sort of started uh, a little bit ago. And so when they found out that they were pregnant, you know, that's just, what, a few weeks? Okay, and that's the beginnings of Eric Ludi. But this is different. We're talking about a man that is unlike Eric Ludi. We're talking about a God-man. Now, in Hebrews 7, there's this really unique statement where Jesus is being likened to Melchizedek. So Melchizedek resembled the Son of God in this fact. He had neither beginning of days nor end of life. So how is he similar to Jesus? Well, he had neither beginning of days nor end of life. Ooh. Meditation number two. He is very God of very God. Now that comes from the Nicene Creed, if you recognize it. God of God, light of light. Very God of very God, begotten, not made. Being of one substance with the Father. Now the reason the Nicene Creed went out of its way to even declare this in the 300s is because of a heresy that was running rampant uh, through the church at the time called the Arian heresy that wanted to make Jesus just a man. 
He was a created being. Now, he was a good created being. Don't get me wrong. He's an incredible created being, but he's not God. His beginning started in the womb of Mary. I mean, he wasn't before that, which ironically, as you follow through in what I'm going to go through, you'll know that that's an impossible conclusion to come to unless you strangulate the scriptures. So the Nicene Creed is going to go out of its way to say, let's get something clear. There is something the early church knew, and it's something we want to hold on to for all time. And that is that he is very God of very God. God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father. John 1, the reason uh, many people feel that John was even written, because it, it was is the fourth gospel. The three gospels written before, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, were written quite a long period of time before the book of John was written. So why would we need a fourth? And it seems to be that if you look at the focus of the book of John, it is on the deity of Jesus Christ. He goes so out of his way to clarify that that man that you see, that you know is Jesus, is in fact God. So you can already see in the early church the movement of this Arian idea that is going to take the divinity or the deity of Jesus and begin to pull it down. So how does John start? He starts with a parallel with the creation story. I mean, this is just like the Genesis 1. In the beginning was the word. Now, that's an interesting statement just right there because what does it say in Genesis 1? In the beginning, God. Okay, so you have a parallel here. It says, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. Okay, now, I don't know how much you know about modern issues in the church, like Jehovah's Witness and things like that, but I mean... This is like under siege almost constantly, okay? This is like big time stuff because how we go on the issue of Jesus' godness affects everything. Just like I said, how we go on the scripture's godness, is the scripture from God or not? If it's not, you're going to immediately see that Jesus goes next and the deity and the godness of Jesus is lost. And if you lose that, then you lose the godness of the cross. And there's no longer God giving up his life and bringing salvation and forgiving sins. Now it is a mere man demonstrating a good example of nobility and love. And we lose the essence of the God work on our behalf. We are saved by God's work, not by our own. And as a result, when you start to lose that, you lose the whole kit and caboodle. So in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. Now, I wish I could just do a teaching just on the godness of Jesus today. That isn't my entire focus, but it's, it would be a fun teaching because it is one of my favorite topics. For in him, speaking of Jesus, dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. For it pleased the Father that in him, Jesus, should all fullness dwell. I'm not sure. See, it says Colossians 2.9 and then 1.19. Why those would be in that order, I'm not sure. You'd think they would be in the reverse order, so someone might need to check on that and see what happened to my copy-paste uh, issues. Philippians 2.5, Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God. This is, an, this is an important statement here because what you see is he is in the form of God and he does not consider it a crime, robbery, to be equal with God. And that other statement in the NIV did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped. The reason I ventured this direction instead of that one is because that could easily sound like God can't grasp it. It's like equality with God isn't something that he can grasp. As opposed to what it means 
is that it's not that he needs to grasp it. It's just right there. He's already equal with God. It's not something he needs to reach for. He is equal with God. And yet the way we hear it in our brain sounds like something he's trying to reach for, but it, he shouldn't. He shouldn't reach for that. When in actuality, he thought it not robbery to be equal with God. So Mark 2, you're going to see this interesting situation in Capernaum where uh, that man, the paralytic, is being let down through the ceiling. And Jesus, instead of just healing the paralytic, is going to do something rather odd. He is going to say something that is going to stir people up, but he's saying it on purpose. Everything Jesus does is on purpose. When Jesus saw their faith, he said it unto the sick of the palsy, Son, thy sins be forgiven thee. There's his line. Now, what it, the guy's sick with the palsy. What, what is this whole thing about sins? But there were certain of the scribes sitting there and reasoning in their hearts, why does this man thus speak blasphemies? Do you hear that? You see, Jesus was accused of speaking blasphemy over and over and over again. What is that? Well, blasphemy would be the opposite of euphemy. Euphemy is, a euphemism is a way of protecting and guarding something as sacred, okay? So, for instance, the Jews use a euphemism of Yahweh, Jehovah, Adonai, to say the unspeakable, ineffable name of God, which is I am that I am, right? They wouldn't say it. They don't even know how it's pronounced, uh, actually, because they wouldn't ever say it, lest they take the name of the Lord, which that capital L-O-R-D, Lord, is that name. Take it in vain, which is given at the Mount Sinai in the Ten Commandments. They don't even want to mess with it, right? And so, as a result they would come up with other names. Like I've, I've said to you guys before that my kids call me Daddy, but my actual name is Eric. So that's strange. Why would they call me Daddy? It's a euphemism, lest they show disrespect. They actually have a different name that shows affection, right? But it also shows honor and respect. So blasphemy is the exact opposite of that. It is actually taking the name in vain. It is mishandling the name. It, very simply put, it is actually declaring that you are God, okay? That would be the accusation that is being brought. So they're saying, who does this man, who, why does this man thus speak blasphemies? What, what is he, all he's doing is saying, thy sins be forgiven thee, that's a nice sounding thing. Who can forgive sins but God only? See, the Jews knew that. There's only one that could actually expunge sin, and that's God, I mean, their whole, their whole culture is based around an understanding of sin consciousness. Their whole culture is. There's only one that can expunge it. There's only one that can atone for it. And that's God Almighty. And so who is this one who would claim to be God? You see, we don't oftentimes see it that way. It's, it's funny, I, I always joke about the fact that we actually don't struggle with the fact that he says, thy sins be forgiven. We, have, we struggle with the fact that rise up and walk. For us, it's harder to imagine some guy walking than it is for the sins to be forgiven. Back then, they had a more difficult time imagining this guy's sins could be forgiven than that Jesus could just heal him. They would have been fine if he didn't do this, and they just, he just healed him. But it's like, your sins be forgiven you. That's because we understand the cross. I and my Father are one. Okay, now that's just a nice-sounding statement. You could say the same type of thing, couldn't you? You could say, I'm a child of God. I'm a son of God. Yep. And you'd be accurate in Christ Jesus. You see, you are adopted as a son or a daughter of God, and you have been brought into a oneness with God Almighty, but it is in and through a legal work of God at that cross. 
In other words, it's not something that you inherently and natively possess. It is something that by faith and by his work of grace has brought you in. This is before that work. And he is saying, I and my father are one. Okay, now for us, that doesn't trip us. Oh, but it did the Jews. Therefore, the Jews sought the more to kill him because he not only had broken the Sabbath, but said also that God was his father, making himself equal with God. Now, when you say that God is your father, you don't make yourself equal with God. What's that? That's because by legal adoption in Christ Jesus, you have been grafted in. Jesus actually is saying that God is my father, like biologically. Like I come from him. I am God. Okay, this is, in the Old Testament, there is a son mentioned. So Jesus is actually saying, I am that son. So this is, this is crisis level stuff for the Jews because this is blasphemy and they are demanded according to the law to kill such a man who would blaspheme God. Well, it's blasphemy if it's not true. What if he is the son of God? That's the one thing that you sort of wonder. It's like, hey guys, you might want to pause and ponder just a little here. Meditation number three. He's the almighty creator of the heavens and earth. Now, I know many of you know this, but for whatever reason, when we grow up in our, whatever version of Christianity we sort of have, we get these notions that Jesus starts in the womb of Mary and that he's not a character in the Old Testament. When in actuality, the New Testament reveals him as being around long before the womb of Mary and not just being around, but being, get this, the almighty creator of the heavens and the earth. Jesus Christ, by whom all things were made. So in Colossians 1, we see, For by him, Jesus, were all things created. Okay, I mean, that says it pretty clearly right there. That are in heaven, that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created by him and for him. And he is before all things, whoa, and by him all things consist. Wait, wait, hold, hold on here. We're talking about Jesus? I mean, I know the Father, but Jesus? Yeah, that's what we're talking about. In other words, we need to understand who this man is. And when you see who this man is, you can't keep standing. You must kneel. Before him, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord to the glory of God the Father. For this man, Jesus, was counted worthy of more glory than Moses, inasmuch as he who has built the house has more honor than the house. So basically it's saying Moses built this culture, this Hebrew culture, this Hebrew nation. It's called the Hebrew Republic. But the one who built, uh, it says that he who has built the house has more honor than the house. Jesus is the one who built Moses. He's the one that built the whole thing. He built the entire universe has more honor than the house. For every house is built by some man, but he that built all things is God. And to make all men see what is the fellowship of the mystery, which from the beginning of the world has been hid in God, who created all things by Jesus Christ. God hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the worlds. Noticing that this is a constant theme and thread. Meditation four, he is, um, he is. 
You see, what you, when, when you hear the term he is, you're always expecting he is something. Okay, like he is love, which is true. He is peace, which is true. He is humble, which is true. However, there's a statement that is before that, and that is he is. God himself, when asked what his name is, says, I am. But when we say what his name is, we don't say I am. We say he is. And so as a result, we need to recognize that God is. He is. So when we talk about Jesus, you know what we say? He is. Even his name is Jehovah, which is he is, and then a verb, which is saves. He is the one that saves. He did save, he does save, and he always will save. So he is in truth Jehovah God, the I am, that was, is, and is to come, the revelation of the Father. He that has seen me has seen the Father. So he's basically saying, you've seen me, you've seen the I am. Ooh. Jesus said unto them, verily, verily, I say unto you, before Abraham was, I am. Okay, by the way, that statement got him into some hot water. What's he saying? He's actually declaring himself to be the I am. Okay, and then if, if, I think Nathan, in the, is it in Daily Thunder that he's walking through the I am statements on Thursdays? And so John seems to go out of his way to make it very clear and to draw this to the surface. I, I don't know how many I am statements there are in John, but it's a lot. I mean, you have the, the classic ones, but then he's going to use that phrase a lot, where in the English, we're going to add a he, like I am he at the end, so we don't see it, but that he is always going to be in brackets and parentheses in your translation, your word-for-word translations, because he doesn't say the he. He says, I am, but we, that doesn't make any sense in English, so we add the he, because otherwise it would just sort of hang out there. Uh, and before Abraham was, I am. Now, a- Abraham is from a long time ago, guys, a lot earlier than Jesus. What do you mean you were before Abraham? Well, you do know who Jesus is, don't you? Jesus Christ, the same yesterday and today and forever. Now you do know what that means, don't you? Jesus Christ, the I am. That's the, that's the equivalent way of saying it. That's actually what that means. In Revelation 1.8, I am Alpha and Omega. The beginning and the ending. Whoa, 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 whoa. Jesus, Jesus. Don't get carried away here. What do you mean you're the beginning? I, I, I can understand that maybe you're the ending. You know, maybe God has that also. But you're the beginning? He is the alpha, the omega, the first, last. The beginning and the ending, says the Lord, which is, which was, and which is to come, the Almighty. Uh, right there, guys, you have a statement that says, Jesus is the I am. Right there, sitting in front of us. That's extraordinary. Meditation number five, he is the word of God made flesh. He is the Bible brought to life, breathing, walking, talking, healing, and rescuing. John 1, 14, and the word was made flesh and dwelt among us. Remember the word that was in the beginning with God, the word that was God, the word that created all things? This same word took on a human form. That's amazing, and he dwelt among us. Revelation 19, 13, And he, Jesus, was clothed with a vesture dipped in blood. And his name is called the Word of God. 
Psalm 33, 6, which ties in a lot of what we've already talked about. This is amazing. This is in the Old Testament. By the word of the Lord were the heavens made. So what made the heavens? The word of the Lord. And all the host of them by the breath of his mouth. We actually know that character. We know who the word of God is. The word of God in letter is now the word of God in life. The word of God in law is now the word of God in spirit and truth. The word of God in proverb is now the word of God in person. Meditation number six. He is the perfect fulfillment of all prophecy and promise of the Christ with divine right to rule and control. Now, if I could give a whole message on canon right here, I would, but I'm not. All the Old Testament is going to set the stage for one who will be born of the seed of a woman. We know that it will be born of a virgin. We know that he will be born in Bethlehem. We know that his ministry will start in Galilee. We know that he must be of the descendancy of Abraham, but not just Abraham, Isaac, and not just Isaac, but David. And so he needs to be of the body of David, and he needs to be of the kingly line of David, because he needs to sit in, on David's throne, which is only inherited from a father, but wait a minute, his father's God, so how is he going to do that? Well, his father Joseph, who's his adoptive father, and he's the firstborn son, if you, even though he's not biologically from Joseph, he inherits Joseph's position, which just happens to be, though they didn't still have kings in uh, Judah at the time, he is of the lineage of kings. That's, that's extraordinary. Everything about this is fulfilled in one man. He must be betrayed for 30 pieces of silver. His hands and his feet must be pierced. They must cast lots for his clothing. He must die. He must rise again. This one man does it all. Every little jot and tittle is fulfilled in this one man. Oh, extraordinary. Meditation number seven. He is over all. I just let that one sink in. King of kings and Lord of lords. The Father has set Jesus at his own right hand in the heavenly places, far above all principality and power and might and dominion in every name that is named, not only in this world but also in that which is to come, and has put all things under his feet and gave him to be the head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him that fills all in all. Philippians 2.9, I know you guys know this scripture, but hey, it never hurts to meditate on this. God also has highly exalted him, and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. I love these statements in Revelation. I have two from Revelation which are really powerful. Revelation 17, 14. These shall make war with the Lamb. So it's funny because even in this situation, the Lamb is like a little fluffy uh, you know, helpless lamb. And these shall make war with the lamb, like all these nations, these kings of the earth will make war with this fluffy little lamb. You know, that's like even the concept in it. It's, it's mocking this. It's saying God in his weakness, his lamb-like state, and the lamb shall overcome them. For you do know who this lamb is, don't you? He is Lord of lords and king of kings. God is going to humble himself to be associated with a lamb a symbol of weakness in the world. And he is going to associate himself with that and capitalize and say, I am the lamb. <laughs> That's just amazing. 
Revelation 19, 16, one of my favorite scriptures. And he has on his vesture and on his thigh a name written. King of kings and Lord of lords. Oh, that's good. Meditation number eight. He is the only savior. Outside of him, no man can be saved. Jesus saith unto him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. Acts 4.12, neither is there salvation in any other, for there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Hebrews 7.25, wherefore he is able also to save them to the uttermost that come unto God by him, seeing he ever lives to make intercession for them. Having therefore, brethren, this is Hebrews 10, 19 through 22. Having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he has consecrated for us through the veil, that is to say, his flesh. And having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, having a heart sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. So there is a sign given, guys. Now, we're closing in on the Christmas season. This is always one of my favorite meditations. There's a sign given that we might recognize the arrival of his majesty. And the angel said unto them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. And this shall be a sign unto you. What is is that sign? What, What is the sign? Brace yourselves for meditation number nine. Meditation number nine. He, the one who is, the one who created the heavens and the earth, God himself, he, um, let's just read the scripture. And the angel said to them, fear not, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David, in the city of David, a savior, which is Christ the Lord. And this shall be a sign unto you. Pause. So the king of kings is coming to this earth. The one who was, is, and always will be the same. God Almighty, who created the heavens and the earth, who is King of kings and Lord of lords. He is coming. What is going to be the sign? First of all, he's going to show up to shepherds, the lowest rung of society. And he is going to impart this sign to them. But still, you know, hey, the sign has to be a high one, right? He's going to come blazing out of heaven in a bolt of lightning. And all people that oppose him will die. You know, immediately, just upon sight. I mean, something there has to be a good sign like that, right? The sign. And this shall be a sign unto you. You shall find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. Now, everything about that is probably lost on most of us because unless we've studied swaddling clothes and mangers. But swaddling clothes could either, there's two different ways you could look at that. Peasantry, for lack of, uh, more expensive garb. So it's, uh, he, you will find him wrapped in poverty. Okay, that's one way you could look at it. The other is swaddling claws were used to bind the, the legs of the uh, sacrificial lambs when they were first born to set them apart. Okay, so either way is pretty profound, right? Lying in a manger. You guys do know what a manger is, right? That's a fotne in the Greek. It's a feeding trough. Dirty animals eat out of that. He's going to be put in a position like on a plate of food. Like you will find the Savior sitting on a plate of, uh, that is used for food. Except for this isn't a human plate. This is a plate for animals. That's where you'll find him. 
the bewildering condescension of our great majestic king should strike us dumb. He, the one who is, the one who created the heavens and the earth, God himself, the one who is holy, 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 the one who has measured the waters of this earth in the hollow of his hand, the one who medied out heaven with a span, the one who comprehended the dust of the earth in a measure, the one who weighed the mountains and scales and the hills in a balance, the one to whom the nations are as a drop in a bucket and are counted as a small dust of the balance, the one who when he heads off to war there are none that can stay his hand, the one who sits his king between the mighty cherubim, above all, over all, and in control of all, the God of all the kingdoms of this earth, the one who can bind the sweet influences of Pleiades and loose the bands of Orion, the one who can set the dominion of his ordinances in the earth, who can send forth lightning, number the clouds, and stay the bottles of heaven. This one was wrapped in swaddling cloths, clothes and laid in a filthy animal feeding box. Meditation number 10. We are those swaddling clothes. The Almighty has condescended to be wrapped in us. Not only did this great one come and humble himself and fulfill all righteousness and do exactly as was said about him, but... He did all that so that he could purchase for himself a people. A troop of what would be rightly described as animals. He even desired us as Gentiles. Now I know some of you could have Jewish uh, lineage to you so you could brag a little. But I'm a Gentile. I'm on the outskirts of all of this. I don't have access to the commonwealth of Israel. I don't have access to the promises. The Messiah, is he actually coming for me? I know he's coming for the chosen, but hey, look at me. I'm on the outside. He came for animals. We're called dogs as Gentiles. He came for us. But not just to come and rescue us so he could bring us into the kingdom of heaven and stick us in the poor district. It's like, well, I'm going to let you in because I'm a merciful God, but hey, you can't get close. You stay out there because you know, we're sort of like the lepers. And so there's a leper colony for all of us Gentiles. And we sort of hang out in the outskirts of the heavenly territory. Still amazing, guys. We don't deserve that. And yet he goes beyond that. Now, I want to call you my children. I want to adopt you as my very own. I want, you to, I want to bring you into my very near presence. And I want to live my life inside of you. I want to make your body my home. I want to be wrapped in swaddling clothes. You. He takes the weak things of this earth and calls it his home. He moves in and desires to have fellowship, intimate fellowship with us. Uh, wow. Christ in you, the hope of glory. Uh-oh, guys, I threw a bonus one in here just to throw you off. I don't want to think that this is just going to end at 10. <laughs> Meditation number 11. Uh, guys, I know this sounds like I'm bragging, and I sort of am. <laughs> I know him. You know this one that we've been talking about? King of kings and Lord of lords, creator of the heavens and the earth. Holy, holy, holy one. I know him. The very God of very God, I know him personally. He calls me friend, brother, son, bride, his beloved, the sheep of his pasture. Let it sink in, guys. It's hard, isn't it? It's funny. We can hear these things, and it's like, it's so magnificent that we can't understand it. So we just sort of stare at the screen and, you know, attempt to nod along. Whoa! And we need to understand this in a greater way. And so let me pray for that. Father, I ask that you would expand 
our understanding of this. And as we enter into a time of worship, that you would increase within us, that our worship would flow out of this meditation. Oh, Lord, thank you for who you are and what you've done. We love you. Amen. Daily Thunder is a listener-supported production of Ellerslie Discipleship Training. At Ellerslie, we are laboring to rouse the Church of Jesus Christ out of its lethargy and build brave-hearted Christians for such a time as this. Daily Thunder is delivered live and streamed daily weekdays at 8.15 a.m. and weekends at 9.15 a.m. Join us at live.ellerslie.com. We invite you to visit us at the beautiful Ellerslie campus in Windsor, Colorado for a day, a week, or an entire season of gospel-centered spiritual training. Learn more at ellerslie.com. Thanks for listening.